This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This week, we're going to be looking at how Jeremiah handled confrontation. And we're not talking now about confrontation, people who are confronting Jeremiah. We're talking about when Jeremiah was called upon to confront others. And this is a theme we see throughout the book. Uh, and something that I think it's important for us to think about as we're considering Jeremiah's life. Uh, everybody loves whistleblowers. Okay, we know that's not true. Um, we, we hear about whistleblowers from time to time. People who uh, bring forward some kind of evidence of corruption or illegal practices in an organization. And though from, we may laud them for their bravery, we don't often envy them their fate. Uh, most of the time, even if they succeed, they'll find themselves ignored or even maligned by former co-workers, and many have a very hard time finding another job. There are laws in place that seek to protect whistleblowers from retribution, uh, but normally it's a pretty thankless undertaking. And the term whistleblower, as we use it now, uh, was not popularized, popularized until the 1970s. But the practice has been around a lot longer than that. Uh, in February of 1777, there were 10 sailors and marines who became probably our nation's first whistleblowers. Uh, they together crafted a petition to the young Congress of the United States outlining grievances against their commander, Essex Hopkins. Now, Commodore Hopkins was the highest ranking officer in the Navy at the time. So they were taking a real risk in speaking out against him in this way. And in their petition, they talked about the Commodore's quick temper, frequent swearing, irreligious and impious example, and inhuman treatment of British prisoners. They concluded that he had shown himself to be unfit for the public department he now occupies. And so they delivered this petition to, the, to Congress. They succeeded in having Hopkins suspended. But then Hopkins responded by suing them for libel in the state of Rhode Island. And two of the men who were Rhode Island residents, uh, Richard Marvin and Samuel Shaw, were arrested and thrown in jail. Uh, so it goes with whistleblowers, even as far back as 1777. Now, the story does have a happy ending. Congress stepped in, passed a resolution protecting uh, these men and others who would do the same sort of things, and they even paid the legal uh, fees for Marvin and Shaw. But since long before our day, whistleblowers have had it tough. Those who would choose to speak out in a way that reflects badly on others end up getting branded as tattletales or traitors or being considered everyone's enemy. But sometimes the scenario calls for confrontation. And Jeremiah found himself in just such a situation in Jeremiah 28. And we'll see tonight what we can glean from his example. But of course, before we dive into Jeremiah 28, we need to know where are we on the timeline. And like last week, we can answer that question with certainty. The events of Jeremiah 28 take place in the fourth year of Zedekiah. So I hope you can see that on here, Jeremiah 28, where it falls in Jeremiah's life. 
We're fast-forwarding about 10 years from Jeremiah 36, which is where we were last week. And again, that confuses us because we say we're in 28. Last week we were in 36. How are we moving forward in time? It's just the way the book is laid out. Okay? But we're about 10 years uh, beyond what happened in the events in Jeremiah 36. And a lot has happened in those 10 years. Uh, King Jehoiakim found himself under Babylon's thumb, and then he decided to rebel and lost his life in the attempt. And we mentioned last week that Jeremiah prophesied that that was going to happen, that Jehoiakim was going to die. And that has come to pass. Jeremiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. When Jehoiakim dies, his 18-year-old son, Jeconiah, reigns for three months as the city of Jerusalem is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it was, that was too much for the young king, and so he decides, he and his whole court, surrender to the Babylonians after three months of siege. They're all taken to Babylon, along with the treasures of the temple, and all the rich and powerful and skilled people of the city. So, Jerusalem is not the same after this. All right, The king is gone, his court is gone, and all of the important and rich people are gone as well. And they've all been taken off to Babylon, along with the treasures of both the king's house and the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar, convinced that all attempts of resistance are over, makes Zedekiah king. Now, Zedekiah was one of Josiah's sons, and he's the third of Josiah's sons to sit on the throne of Judah. And as we come to Jeremiah 28, Zedekiah has been the puppet king of Judah for four years. So Babylon technically is in charge at this point. Zedekiah is just kind of a figurehead. Uh, but he's, he's been in that position for four years as we come to, come to this chapter. Jeremiah has been able to come out of hiding, and he's prophesying with a bit less fear for his life than he had under Jehoiakim. Zedekiah isn't openly hostile towards Jeremiah like Jehoiakim was, but we will see that Jeremiah still had plenty of trouble under his reign, mostly because we'll see that Zedekiah seems most significantly concerned with doing whatever will make him look good to the people and to his advisors. That is what drives Zedekiah. He wants to look good before the people. And so that leads to some foolish decisions. It leads to him mistreating Jeremiah in quite a few cases. But that is the Judah in which we find ourselves as we come to Jeremiah 28, just in time to hear a man named Hananiah begin to speak. So let's take a look at, at the chapter, Jeremiah 28, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, that Hananiah the son of Azar the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me, that's Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now we need to understand that Jeremiah was not the only prophet in his day. 
in thinking about how common prophets were, we're probably helped if we think less in terms of fortune tellers and more in terms of preachers. Uh, not all prophets were focused on foretelling what was going to happen in the future. But they all claimed that they were speaking God's words. And there were lots of people in Jeremiah's day walking around claiming to speak on behalf of God. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, there are many references to prophets in the plural. So this is not just a few people. It's like a whole group within the society. He speaks about them much the same way he would speak about the priests. It's this, it's this whole group of people within the society of Judah. And so it's not entirely uncommon for someone to stand up and say, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, like Hananiah does here. Just like that is by no means uncommon in our day for someone to stand up and profess to be speaking the word of God. There are lots of people in Jeremiah's day who are claiming to speak the words of God. And here Hananiah is making that claim. And so what is his message? What is Hananiah saying is the word of God? Um, first of all, his, he preaches freedom. Now, who doesn't like freedom? Hananiah says both in verse 2 and verse 4 that God has broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now, we know what a yoke is. Uh, we usually associate it with oxen, but it, it's this wooden implement that's put on a couple of animals when they're pulling something together. And the yoke is used throughout scripture as a picture of bondage, of servitude, of hard labor, and it seems to be an apt picture of the situation in which the people of Judah found themselves. Remember, they are not free people right now. Now, they might have some appearance of that with their own king, but they are underneath Babylon. Babylon is in charge right now. And so, Hananiah uses this image, and we'll see why he chose this image in particular later in the chapter. And then he says, the yoke is broken. The bondage is over. The people are no longer servants. The great slave driver Nebuchadnezzar has had his power taken from him. For a nation who has been living so long under the shadow of Babylon and who is now under their control, that's a really welcome message. That is something that the people of Judah are going to be very ready to hear. Freedom? The yoke is broken? We're going to get out from underneath Babylon? This is wonderful. Instead of a yoke, they could expect to be set free from their labor, free to, to run in the meadow, if you want to stick with the, the picture of the, of the oxen. And so Hananiah preaches this message of freedom, but it's also a message of restoration. I mentioned that when Jeconiah surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar came in and he stripped the temple of its precious metals and its treasures, and now Hananiah promises that the people of Judah will get back both their king and their treasure. Now, you've got to recognize, you might say, well, they already have a king, Zedekiah. Well, all the people realize he's not really a king, all right? And he goes to great lengths to try to convince them otherwise throughout his reign. But they realize this is just a puppet in the hands. He's just a puppet in the hands of Babylon. 
And so we want our real king back. Jeconiah is the last one who has really sat on the throne as a true king of Judah, and Hananiah is saying, he's coming back. And we're getting the treasure back. And then he goes so far as to say that all the captives who have gone to Babylon, which quite likely included friends and family of those who were listening to Hananiah, he said they're all coming home. That's Hananiah's promise. Not only does he promise all of these wonderful events, but he even says it's all going to happen within two full years. So he promises national freedom and a return to national glory, and it's going to happen within the next two years. Now, obviously, this is going to be a popular message among the highly nationalistic Jews. And I can easily imagine them. They're listening, and they're beginning to smile. Their, their hearts are swelling. Even perhaps they're cheering him as he's, as he's preaching this message. What a wonderful message. We're going to be set free. Our, our nation is going to be restored. This is so wonderful. And here stands Jeremiah. How does he respond to this message? This message of, of freedom and of restoration, just what the people want to hear. Well, look at verses 5 and 6 and see Jeremiah's amen. Verse 5, Then the prophet Jeremiah said unto the prophet Hananiah, In the presence of the priests, and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord, even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. The Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words which thou hast prophesied to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into this place. Jeremiah, even after over 30 years of mostly fruitless ministry, has avoided becoming jaded. When Hananiah preaches this message of glorious restoration and freedom, Jeremiah says, Amen. Which means, let it be so. He's saying, may the Lord cause these things to happen. He says, oh, oh Hananiah, that, that is exactly what I want to happen. I, I would love to see those things happening. Now, you'll notice he does not say, that's right, Hananiah, that's what the Lord has said. But he does respond graciously. He says, Oh, let, let what you are saying, let that be the reality of what's going to happen. I, I would love that just as much as you would, Hananiah. Jeremiah was ready to rejoice in good news for the nation, even if it contradicted what he'd been preaching all along. He was ready. If God has changed his mind, and this is the new reality of what's going to happen, Jeremiah is ready to, to let all the rest of it go and say, this is great. Let's, let's move forward with it, if that's God's word. He shows great humility here. He's, he doesn't respond to Hananiah with, with jealousy or with condescension. He's very gracious. His attitude reminds me of that of Paul in Philippians 1. There in, in Philippians 1, as many of you will realize, Paul is imprisoned. And he's talking about the gospel in, in chapter 1. And he's talking about the fact that God is using even his bondage as a means of the gospel going out. And, and one way that's happening is there are many people who are boldly preaching Christ. And there are some who are boldly preaching Christ specifically because Paul is imprisoned. 
in verse 15, he says that there are some who are doing so even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. He, he explains there are some people who are preaching the truth out of spite. Some are preaching it out of love, but others are preaching it out of spite. Some people are specifically trying to make Paul's bondage more grievous by the fact that they're preaching. Now, he doesn't necessarily explain exactly how that's the case, but it, perhaps it's just people who are trying to, to say, in your face, Paul, you can't preach anymore, but we can. I don't know how exactly this is happening, but he's saying there are people who are preaching Christ for the worst possible motive. Uh, they're just doing it out of spite. But what does he have to say about that? He says in verse 18, What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul could have been really bothered by this. He, he could have let it really get to him, and he would have said, you know, they're preaching out of these horrible motives. I just wish they could be silent. I, I wish I could shut them up. But he's humble. He says, if they're preaching the truth, I'm going to rejoice in that, even if they have terrible motives. I, I'm still going to rejoice in it. And I think that, that is this Jeremiah's attitude. I think another reflection of this attitude we find is, is with Jesus Christ. In Mark 9, 38, the apostle John comes to Christ. And he says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. So what John is saying is, there's a man who's doing God's work in your name, but he wasn't part of the group of disciples that, that's following Jesus around. He, he's not part of this group of disciples we hear about so much through the Gospels who are, who are following Christ and listening to his teaching all the time and seeing all the miracles. He's not part of that group, but he's over here and he's doing God's work and he's doing it in Christ's name. And John says, he's not with us and so... I, we, we told him, you need to stop. Well, Jesus says in verse 39, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. And so Jesus is warning his disciples about developing an attitude that, that is quick to condemn others or to forbid them from representing Christ just because they're not part of a familiar group. Here, as Hananiah preaches, Jeremiah could have easily said, Okay, Hananiah, you're coming out of nowhere. I've never heard any of your preaching before. And this message sounds all wrong. And just try to silence him right then and there. But instead, he has a gracious attitude towards him. He's not quick to jump on him and say, You need to be quiet. Because you're not preaching what, what I feel like you ought to be preaching. Or you're not part of this, this group that I'm a part of. I'm not familiar with you. And so I think we can learn a lot from the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Paul and the spirit of Jeremiah with how they respond here. Jeremiah is ready to rejoice in anyone who is preaching the truth. But it doesn't stop there. He is gracious towards Hananiah, but then he goes on because the question arises, was Hananiah preaching the truth? Jeremiah is ready to rejoice in it. If Hananiah is 
the prophet of God and he's speaking the word of God, Jeremiah is ready to get behind it and say, Amen, this is great. I'm so excited about it. Let's, you know, let's move forward with this. But after the encouragement and the graciousness, Jeremiah goes on and, and gives Hananiah an important warning. Verse 7, Nevertheless, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears, and in the ears of all the people. The prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. The warning Jeremiah gives here, again, is graciously given, but I think that he's genuinely trying to help Hananiah and also Hananiah's listeners. I think it's significant that as Jeremiah speaks, he's addressing not only Hananiah, but he's also addressing all the people. He says, Hananiah, I'm speaking to you, and I'm speaking to them. And as he's speaking to all of them, he, he gives a two-part warning. He warns based on prophetic history in verses 7 and 8. He points out there that the war and evil and pestilence that have been promised by many prophets predate both Jeremiah and Hananiah. So he's talking about there's a history here, okay? It's not just Hananiah comes out of nowhere and he's the first prophet and there's never been a prophet before him. There is a history. There are others who have been prophesying. There's others who have been ministering. There's others who have been speaking the word of God. And Jeremiah doesn't mention himself, but I think that's also an underlying understanding here. Jeremiah has been prophesying for over 30 years at this point. And the things that he's been prophesying are beginning to become the experience of the people of Judah. Jeremiah's been saying, this is going to happen. Babylon's going to come. They're going to take over. And those things are beginning to take place. And the people are beginning to experience it. And then all of a sudden, Hananiah is loudly and publicly declaring a reversal of all of that. Jeremiah is simply pointing out a very valid point. And that is, if one person's message contradicts many others that have gone before, we need to consider it very carefully. Rather than just swallowing it whole because it sounds good to us. The people listening to Hananiah that day could have been very easily tempted to say, I am ready to just totally accept this message of Hananiah. But Jeremiah is saying, think about the history. Think about the other prophets. Think about the others who have been preaching. What have they been preaching about? They've been preaching about war and evil and calamity. They've been preaching about the things you're beginning to experience. And I myself even have been preaching about those things for all these years. And so when Hananiah shows up and what he says is in direct contradiction of all of that, you better be cautious. And I think the warning there is a warning for the people of Jeremiah's day, and it's a warning for us as well. And I think it, it shows us the value of historical theology. I used to always think that historical theology was kind of pointless. Why do I want to study what people believed 300 years ago? 
or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago? Why do I care? Can't I just study God's word for myself and then figure out from that what God has to say? And there's, in one way, there's, a, there's some validity to that. But if what I, if the conclusions I come to about God's word contradict centuries of Christians before me, maybe I need to go back to God's word and think a little more carefully about how I'm interpreting it. And so, when sometimes when we hear something new, there's somebody who comes along and, and they preach a new doctrine. They preach something that we've never heard before. They teach something we've never heard before. And we think, that's new. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. That's so much different from what I've heard before. Wait. Be careful. They're not necessarily wrong. But we need to be cautious. And that's what Jeremiah is telling the people. He's saying, I'm not saying straight out that Hananiah is wrong, but think about all the prophets before you and before me. And let's be careful about this. Let's look at Hananiah's prophecy through the lens of prophetic history. And then he also gives the prophetic test. Um, he mentions that. Verse 9 um, he, he talks about this test, which had been around for quite a while. In fact, all the way back in Deuteronomy 18.22, Jeremiah said, or I'm sorry, God said to his people through Moses, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of them. So all the way back in the very beginning of the founding of Israel, God said, if a prophet comes and says, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen, don't listen to him. Jeremiah is basically saying the same thing here. Uh, mostly it would seem for the benefit of the, of the onlookers, of the crowd that was gathered that day. He's warning, this guy Hananiah has not been proven. We don't see anywhere else in Scripture where Hananiah is prophesying. It seems like he just kind of pops up out of nowhere. And so he hasn't been proven. He hasn't shown himself to be a true prophet. He hasn't shown himself to be someone who is speaking the truth. And Jeremiah says, let's apply the prophetic test here. All right? He said it's going to happen within two years. Let's see what happens. Let's not jump to conclusions about this guy. Let's see if his prophecy comes true. So I do think there are some things we can learn from Jeremiah about how to approach when, when someone new comes along or we're exposed to a, a new preacher or teacher or some doctrine that we've never heard before. Jeremiah, to begin with, is not exactly sure about this guy. And so he responds carefully. He responds graciously. He's kind to Hananiah throughout, but he also issues some warnings. He warns the people not to accept this message too quickly. He's humble and he's ready to listen. He's excited at the prospect of being able to rejoice in good news for the nation, but he's not naive. He recognizes God doesn't just change his mind about something for no reason. 
And so Jeremiah doesn't discount the possibility of a change, but he's not ready to accept Hananiah's message just yet. He doesn't stamp Hananiah out, but he's not ready to put his stamp of approval on him either. And so that's how Jeremiah responds. And Hananiah responds to Jeremiah's graciousness and maturity with stubbornness. Verses 10 and 11. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and brake it. And Hananiah spake in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within this space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. So, here we see why Hananiah used the symbolism of the yoke. He mentioned the yoke earlier. Jeremiah had used and was still using a yoke, a physical yoke, as a symbol. And if you look back one chapter in Jeremiah 27, we see an explanation of that. Um, so, it actually goes back, if you look at Jeremiah 27, going all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, this goes back to the reign of Jehoiakim. And in, during the reign of Jehoiakim, verse 2 of Jeremiah 27, Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them upon thy neck, and send them to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and to the king of the Ammonites, and to the king of Tyrus, and to the king of Zidon. So, these yokes are a symbol... God says, of Babylon and her ability to bring the nations under her control. And so God's telling Jeremiah, you make these yokes and you send them to these kings, and that is a message to these nations, you are going to be conquered by Babylon. Babylon is going to put you in service to herself. All right, this is going to happen. And if they resist, he warns, they'll be destroyed. Now, Jeremiah preaches this message during Jehoiakim's reign, and he continues to preach the message even into Zedekiah's reign. And we see that even later in chapter 27. Verse 12 tells us that he took the message up with King Zedekiah. It says, I spake also to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people and live. Why will ye die, thou and thy people, by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, as the Lord hath spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? And very interestingly, after that warning, he goes on to warn about false prophets in verses 16 and 17. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Hearken not to the words of your prophets that prophesy against you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house shall now shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you. Hearken not unto them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Wherefore should this city be laid waste? Did that lie being told by the prophets sound familiar? This is before Hananiah has showed up, but there are already other prophets who are saying, the treasure is going to come back from Babylon. You can expect that we're going to get it all back, and we're going to be restored, and it's going to be wonderful. And Jeremiah says, it's a lie. Don't listen to the prophets. They're lying to you. And then in chapter 28, who shows up? Hananiah comes on the scene, and he's, saying, he's telling everyone the same old lie. But he, he makes use of this illustration that Jeremiah has been using for his own purposes. 
and I'm not going to beat this drum too much again. Um, I talked about it when we talked about the preaching of Jeremiah, but isn't it interesting? Jeremiah is back at it with his illustrations. And we see this throughout the book. He uses these vivid illustrations, many of them live-action illustrations. Um, he and Ezekiel both, and they were contemporaries of each other. And so Jeremiah is walking around the city, at least from time to time, with this yoke on his neck. And as time goes on and he's preaching this message, saying, you need to submit yourselves to Babylon. You need to give in to God's will here. If you submit, then God will bless you. If you don't submit, you'll be destroyed. And this yoke is a picture of that. He's saying, put yourselves under the yoke of Babylon. Don't try to buck that. Don't try to fight against it. That's what God wants for, for the nation. And so, I'm sure at this point it's gotten to the point where people just see Jeremiah and they see that yoke on his neck and just seeing that image preaches a whole sermon to them. They know the message behind it. And I could just imagine people in Jerusalem and as more and more people are coming from different parts of Judah as they're fleeing from the oppression of Babylon they're coming and they're showing up in the city and, and like, what's up with that guy? What's with the yoke on his neck? And the message is spreading. And more and more people are realizing this is God's word to us. And so Jeremiah is, is making use of this image. And then now Hananiah wants some of that attention. And so he, he takes advantage of his ability. He, he seems to have a knack for knowing how to get people to say, wow, I like this guy, all right? Hananiah knows how to get people's attention. And so he takes the yoke and he dramatically breaks it to underscore his message. He says, you know that yoke that Jeremiah has been preaching about? Well, guess what? The yoke is broken. And so who is not going to be listening to Hananiah at this point? I mean, you see the, this... This guy preaching, and then all of a sudden, he's taking his yoke, and he's just smashing it on the ground. And you're like, whoa, what's going on over there? And so Hananiah is being stubborn in his position, and he is trying to draw even more attention to himself. Now, I do think that those who share the truth ought to give thought and attention to their delivery. And I think that Jeremiah is a great example of someone who spoke the truth in ways that grabbed people's attention, in ways that were memorable, but we all know that great delivery of a message does not make that message true. I was listening a few days ago to an account of Adolf Hitler's first attempt to seize power in Germany. It happened in 1924, and he failed in his attempt, and um, soon after that he found himself on trial, accused of high treason. But Hitler saw the trial, which incidentally began 98 years ago this Saturday, as an opportunity. He took advantage of the watching eyes of the nation to deliver some fiery nationalistic speeches. He, he lost the case and ended up being convicted uh, of treason, though he got a very light sentence. But a History.com article I read said, it soon became evident that Hitler was winning the public relations battle by using the 25-day trial as a showcase for his extreme right-wing views, even if he was technically losing the case. In his closing argument, 
Hitler declared that he would ignore the court's verdict because the eternal court of history would acquit him. And it worked. Hitler stole the spotlight. And that trial became an important stepping stone on his way to power. He, he has gone down in history as a powerful, if not legendary, public speaker. But we all know he used his power of persuasion and his ability to manipulate a crowd not for the sake of the truth, but to support a hateful and violent ideology and to aid in his own stunning rise to power. So just because a guy knows how to speak doesn't mean he's speaking the truth. Just because somebody knows how to preach doesn't mean he's preaching the truth. Hananiah seems pretty sure of himself. And it would seem he likely has the crowd on his side at this point. He, he's ready to go a few rounds with Jeremiah, prophet against prophet, he, seeing who can win in a battle of words. Hananiah started out, Jeremiah came back, and now Hananiah is saying, Come on, what have you got? I'm, I'm upping the ante. And how does Jeremiah respond to that? To this seeming challenge from Hananiah? Well, he walks away. Jeremiah doesn't argue. He doesn't try to top Hananiah. He just goes his way. He does the wise and humble and mature thing at this point. Jeremiah has said what needed to be said. He has spoken graciously and Hananiah has responded to that with pride. And Jeremiah knows that continuing this conversation is only going to lead to the wrong thing. His presence is no longer a help in this situation. And so Jeremiah leaves. It takes a lot of maturity and a lot of humility to walk away at a time like that. And I think that's a skill we all need to cultivate. Knowing when it's time to walk away and being able to walk away even if we haven't had the last word. But as Jeremiah walks away from Hananiah, who does he go to? Well, he goes to God. In verses 12 through 14, we see God's word and God's perspective on this whole situation. And I think Jeremiah realized after this conversation with Hananiah, I don't know how to move forward with this without knowing, without hearing from God, without knowing God's word as it applies to Hananiah. And he finds that in verses 12 through 14. Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet, after that Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and they shall serve him, and I have given him the beasts of the field also. I think that Jeremiah was pretty sure, even before he heard this from God, that Hananiah was just another false prophet. But instead of trusting his instincts, he goes back to the source of truth. In God he finds unflinching authority. God's word is bedrock for Jeremiah's convictions. It's the cornerstone that Jeremiah needs to return to. 
So what does God say? How does, he sh- how does God's word shed light on what Hananiah has said? Well, God says, here's what I have to say to Hananiah. You can break wood, but you can't break iron. And the yoke on the neck of Judah and all the other nations is going to be an iron yoke. And that underscores the fact that not only that God would be true to his word, but also that the wooden yoke they were currently under was not the worst it was going to get. The bondage was going to get harder. It was going to get worse for Judah and for the other nations. Gananiah had broken the symbol of God's word, but he hadn't broken God's word. God's promises held fast. And so God has spoken, and now Jeremiah has God's position. And as he goes to Hananiah, we find that the way he speaks to him after this is much different from the way he spoke to him in verses 6 through 9. Jeremiah's confrontation is in verses 15 through 17. The Bible says, Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. This year thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. When the time comes for confrontation, Jeremiah does not pull punches. Before Jeremiah knows what to think of Hananiah's message, he reserves judgment. But when he knows, he makes his position, and vitally, he makes God's position very clear. And I believe Jeremiah shares this message not just to Hananiah, but publicly. Once again, I think that Jeremiah is most concerned not just about sharing this message with Hananiah himself, but getting this message out to the people and letting them know the truth about the message that Hananiah has shared. And so Jeremiah tells Hananiah, in essence, you're a liar. He can say with complete confidence that Hananiah is indeed a false prophet and that those beautiful promises that he gave had no truth to them. But not only does he call him a liar, he also says, you're a dead man. Before the year is over, Jeremiah promises, you will die. Now remember what Hananiah had promised? He said, within two years, the yoke of Babylon will be broken, and the king and the people and the treasures will return. Well, Hananiah said, two years, and within two months, he's dead. Hananiah said, this is going to happen within two years. And I think God very specifically had Jeremiah say, before this year is over, you're going to die. Because God was saying, before we even have enough time to find out if you're a false prophet or not, before the prophetic test is finished to see whether in those two years what you said is going to happen, before that even, we even get to that point, you're going to be dead. And so we'll know. Before we even know for sure about you because of that, we'll know for sure because Jeremiah's prophecy against you will have been fulfilled. And two months later, later, Hananiah is dead. 
So this is how Jeremiah confronts a false teacher in Judah. And Jeremiah does a lot of this in his ministry. He, he does a lot of calling people out. Um, many times throughout the book, he calls out false prophets. Uh, Jeremiah 23 uh, has one of the most extended passages where he's, he's uh, preaching against the false prophets in the land. Uh, but he doesn't just call out prophets. Uh, Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31, Jeremiah mourns, A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? So Jeremiah is publicly saying, the prophets are prophesying falsely, and the priests are doing what they're doing just for the money. Now remember, Jeremiah is a prophet from a priestly family. And here he is publicly saying, they're corrupt, they're wrong, they are not following in the way of God. He also calls out others who are leaders in the nation. Interestingly, if you search the word pastors in your King James Bible, uh, eight references will come up. But you might be surprised that find, to find that seven of those references are in the book of Jeremiah. And so we realize, as Jeremiah uses the word pastors, he's not talking about pastors in the sense that we would normally think about them today. But of course, the word pastor literally means shepherd. And so Jeremiah is talking about the leaders of the people and using this imagery of shepherds. And he's calling them out because he's saying, basically, you're bad shepherds. You are not leading the sheep in the way you ought to be leading them. One example of this is beginning of Jeremiah 23, which you will have read this week if you're, um, if you're doing the Bible reading. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And so through Jeremiah, God is calling out the leaders among the people. And he does that uh, in other passages as well. If you like alliteration, you'll appreciate the fact that in our English Bible, Jeremiah calls out the pastors, he calls out the princes, he calls out the priests, and he calls out the prophets. All right? I'm not a big fan of alliteration, so I don't appreciate the, that the way that some of you might. But, um, but he's, he's going after these people and publicly proclaiming that they are wrong. And I think it's important for us to realize this is not that he's trying to, um, this is not character assassination. This is not going out after people because of bitterness towards them. But Jeremiah, as someone who is called by God to preach the truth, part of that is confronting error. And when he realizes that people are being taught error, it is his duty to address that. And this is something that many of us are not super comfortable with. Um, we, we just think, as long as I just preach the truth, as long as I just share the truth, I, I don't necessarily need to talk about those who are, who are preaching what's false. But 
Jeremiah saw it as his duty given to him by God to make it clear to people when they were being taught a lie. Now, this doesn't mean that our main focus of what we're doing is looking for error and trying to find the things that we can latch onto to try to tear people down or try to hurt their ministry or try to find some small flaw with what they're doing. But when there is a lie being preached and people are beginning to fall for it and we can see this is having an impact on people's lives, this is hurting them, a friend that you know who is listening to a preacher who is not helping them spiritually or reading books that are very wrong when it comes to scripture, I believe it is our duty to address that. Not that you're going to go online and you're going to have a blog talking about all that wrong, but you're going to go to those people and say, look, here's, here's what this says and here's how that matches up with scripture and how it's wrong. And, and I, this is not something that's going to help you spiritually. And so this is something I think we, we, need to, we need to grasp and we need to be willing to confront error in the right way and in the arenas in which we have the opportunity to do that. Interestingly, we see this, we see great examples of this throughout Scripture. Um, a couple, one that comes to mind immediately when we think about confrontation is the Apostle Paul. And we probably all know the story in Galatians 2 uh, the Apostle Peter had developed the habit of dining with Gentiles. No problem with that. Jesus has torn down the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. And it seems actually that Peter's example in that is, is being a help to other believers, where they're realizing it's okay for us to eat together. It never was before under the law, but now in Christ, that's okay. The wall's been broken down. We can eat together. And then James, who is kind of the head pastor in Jerusalem, comes to visit. And Peter realizes James is coming from a very Jewish congregation. Think about Jerusalem. The majority of the Christians there were Jews who had been saved. And so this very Jewish congregation, he's, he's thinking, well, James isn't necessarily going to be used to this, where, where Jews and Gentiles are just hanging out together and they're eating together and doing all these things together. James is not going to be used to that. He's not necessarily going to be comfortable with that. And so Peter withdraws from their company. Just to kind of smooth things over, make it easier when James shows up so he doesn't have to give any hard explanations or, or risk you know, offending James or whatever. Well, that causes some issues because there are others who watch what Peter's doing and they, they're like, oh, okay, I guess I should stop eating the Gentiles too. Well, Paul hears about it. And as he records in Galatians 2, he says to Peter, and this is in front of the whole congregation, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul is saying, Peter, by your actions, you are preaching falsehood. You are preaching heresy by the way you're acting. This is contrary to the gospel as Christ has given it to us. 
And he does this before the whole congregation because he realizes they are learning an error from Peter's doctrine or Peter's actions, and this needs to be corrected. And Paul is willing to do it publicly. He seeks to be gracious, but he's very straightforward with it. Of course, we find no more stinging confrontation in Scripture than Jesus Christ himself as he speaks out against religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And I believe that Jesus was mostly concerned when he was speaking that way about warning the people. Again, he wants people to know the things you're being taught are wrong. And he realizes this needs to be preached publicly. It needs to be preached clearly. And they need to realize what the scribes and Pharisees are instructing them in is wrong. And he comes out very clearly against it. So we need God's, God's guidance in this. We need discernment in it. We need to be gracious. And I do think we need to take example from Jeremiah with the way he responds to this in the beginning. He's not quick to cast judgment on Hananiah. He's not quick to jump to conclusions. He's not quick to, to snuff out the message of this prophet. But he's also not too quick to accept what he's saying and go right along with it and say, oh, that sounds great. I love the, I love the sound of that message. He's discerning. He's gracious. He's humble. And when he knows clearly how God's word interacts with what Hananiah is saying, he is not afraid to speak it clearly for all to understand. So, again, I've gone too long to allow for questions and comments this evening, and I apologize for that. It's all my fault tonight. Um, but uh, we'll ask you to notice the Bible reading for this week. You only have five chapters to read this week. All right. I will warn you, next week it's going to be seven chapters. Right? It's just the way the chapters flow um, that will cause that to happen. But... Uh, um, but I encourage you to keep up with that. Next week, we're going to consider what we were originally going to consider tonight, which is what did it cost Jeremiah to continue in his faithful decades-long ministry? We'll consider several aspects of the price that Jeremiah paid, even as Judah continued to decline and the captivity loomed ever nearer for the unrepentant people. So we'll be considering that next week. If you need handouts from previous weeks, or you have questions or anything like that, please see me as soon as we're done. Let's pray, we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for, again, for the example of Jeremiah. And the more time we spend in this book, the, the richer um, I have found to be Jeremiah's example in so many different areas of ministry. Thank you for the example of his humility and his graciousness in the way that he responded to this upstart preacher. Thank you also for the example of his bold, clear message when he knew how to bring God's word to bear on what he'd heard. And I pray that you would help us to model both of those things as we seek to uh, interact in the right way with others who are claiming to speak on behalf of God. Uh, may we be careful. May we be discerning. And may we be your tools to help others be careful and discerning as well. 
and guide us in this. Father, we need your spirit. We, we can't just follow a formula to do this the right way. We need the guidance of your spirit. Help us be faithful servants this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.